Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast world. I'm Brooke McCallery and thank you for joining us. I'm Ben and welcome to episode 197. And this one's a little different. It's a little different. It's a little different. Yeah, it is actually quite a lot different. So it's not you or I doing the interviewing today. Mm-hmm. It is our friend, friend of the show. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, Mike Campbell. And Mike, you probably know from his podcast, Live Immediately. And if you don't, immediately go over there and get living. Nice. If not a little aggressive. You're welcome, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, backstory for, for why this episode is, is a, little, a little different. Mike and Sam Duve live in Newcastle. So Sam is another person I've met through the podcast and they wanted to put on a book launch event during the upcoming book tour and contacted me and we spoke to the my book publisher and it's all going ahead. So I'm doing a book talk at Hunter Design School on the 27th of September. So you've got a few days if you live in Newcastle or want to make the trip up uh, at six o'clock on the Wednesday night at uh, Hunter Design School. So that's going to be a lovely evening uh, and Mike Mike and Sam will be there and they're hosting it. So he and I wanted to get together and do an episode of his show just to publicise the, you know, the event and then we thought that it might be a nice idea for him to interview me and post it here as well because we don't often get me interview being interviewed yeah apart from me and i'm no expert but it's really nice to get like an out an external person to interview you and ask the questions that may seem very obvious to me that probably aren't yeah so anyway mike and i have a fantastic conversation and i'm really really glad that we're that he's agreed to to have it cross published i guess on Mm. his feed and ours uh and yeah he has some really good questions he always does he's very thoughtful and intentional and I don't know I I guess asks things that a lot of other people don't Mm, agree yeah I remember um being interviewed for his podcast last year and I think it was one of the first handful of episodes and I and I did it in in Camel over in in the Rocky Mountains he was in America while house sitting and I was so hungover (laughs) so I'll always remember that it's got a special place in your heart. <laughs> oh, uh, but Mike and Inga have, uh, they, I think their journey, so they house sat their way across the States for a year with their young daughter in 2016. And their story and the way that they you know, were courageous in embracing it has always inspired me. I really enjoy watching their life unfold. And Mike talks about, some big changes that they've got coming up or that may be on the cards over the, the coming months as well. And I love, I, I just love seeing it. I love seeing people who are intentional and who pay attention to what's important and then make decisions accordingly. I find that incredibly inspiring. Uh, and yeah, Mike asks about the book and he asks about, uh, you know, our plans for next year as well. And also the how of all the things that we're doing and changing and, and how it's, uh, it's a process and it is work. It's work. I think the one of the things that I loved about our conversation was that he's really happy to 
dig into the work of making big changes in your life because I think so often we don't see them. You know, we we assume that making changes must be easy for other people because we only see the results of them. We don't see the hard hard work of it. Mm. So I really appreciated being able to talk through it with him. Yeah, Mike's a terrific guy. I'm, I'm a big fan of Mike and his podcast, which we're going to link in the show notes to this. We certainly are. This one, episode 197. You could listen to both episodes and spot the differences. <laughs> Should be really interesting. <laughs> like ten, ten Easter eggs that we've just <laughs> littered in in these almost exactly the same conversations. Uh, no, but Mike, yeah, Mike's tops. So go and give him some love. And if yeah, if you don't already listen to his podcast, I highly recommend you checking it out because he's always interviewing fascinating people who are making incredible real changes mm. to their life. Mm. Yeah. Mike said that we were a massive influence in him and Ingra travelling mm-hmm. um, in 2016. They, yep, just picked up sticks and, and went and, and lived in America for, for a year house-sitting, as we've mentioned. But I reckon they've had just as much influence totally. on us yep. doing the same. Totally. Yeah. I agree completely. So head over to slowyourhome.com slash 197 for links to everything and then also go and check out Mike at Live Immediately uh, in all the places you find good podcasts and also on social media under the same name. Banner. Yes. Good, good. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Brooke. How are you? Mike, I'm so well. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Very well indeed. And thank you for coming back on the Live Immediately podcast for the second time. This is beautiful. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, I absolutely love talking to you. So anytime I get a chance to is a, is a good morning. <laughs> and whereabouts are you on this beautiful morning? I'm in my office at home in the mountains. Um, spring is just starting to, to spring, I guess. And <laughs> yeah. Funny that. <laughs> Spring is springing. <laughs> uh, beautiful. And we were kind of chatting before because we, we're, we're chatting at um, like 7 a.m. this morning. And for parents with school-age kids, it's, an, it's a really interesting time. I can't believe that we both agreed to this time, but it was the, <laughs> the only time that we could fit in both of our schedules. <laughs> yeah, so apologies in advance for any kind of uniform-related screaming in the background. <laughs> it's just the time of the day. But I wanted to get you back onto the podcast because I received your beautiful book, Slow, in the mail. So firstly, congratulations for that. Oh, thank you. It's a, yeah, it's a funny feeling having it out in the, in the world and having people read and react to it. But uh, yeah, thank you. It's, it's, I'm glad that it's, it's out and I can take a big deep breath and let it go. <laughs> yeah. Well, w- when it did arrive, my wife Inga nabbed it straight away and she was the one who kind of really tucked into it and just consumed this book. So I, I did have to wait patiently before <laughs> I could kind of get my hands on it. But but speaking about getting my hands on it, the feel of this book is beautiful. I love it that you've chosen some quality paper, the way that it's laid out, the quotes that are kind of pulled out through, throughout, the, the illustrations and obviously the words on the page, but it really feels like a well-thought book. 
Yeah, thank you. It was, I mean, I worked with a couple of really awesome people at the publisher at Alan Unwin who championed the book in that way. So, I mean, I had in mind what I wanted to, it to be and then they threw their expertise in and that's kind of what what came about and I, I, I agree with you. I love that it's hardcover. I love that it's kind of, it feels significant and I don't know, it, it, there's a, a real texture to it that I love particularly the cover. Yeah, so it's nice to hear that other people kind of feel that way as well. Yeah, no, it really is beautiful. And obviously we're going to be talking uh, about the book and and other things in today's (laughs) chat. But I just wanted to start off because with a new book, there is obviously a a book tour that that goes along with that. And you are going to be in my hometown here of Newcastle, and I can't wait to meet you in person again, on Wednesday, September 27th from 6.30 p.m. at the Hunter Design School, which is 67 Parry Street, Newcastle. And my friend and um, podcast guest, Samantha Dove, she reached out to me and she's like, you know, Brooke McCallery, her new book's going to be coming out. Why don't we get together and have a, a Newcastle book launch for her? And I was like, Definitely. And one thing led to another and and here's kind of where we're at. And it's so beautiful that you've kind of created this community of people that really want to grab onto your work and spread it far and wide. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I can take any credit for that because it's just an amazing group of people. I really, I I love every single one of them. And, And the I think that's what's blown me away uh, in the last couple of weeks since the book came out. The support from people has been phenomenal. I mean, you and Sam and uh, countless other people have gotten in touch and asked what they can do to help or are offering to put on events and, you know, lots of other things that people are doing. And I think more than anything, it speaks to the fact that there are so many of us who want to slow down and this idea of slow you know, and taking the time to pay attention and notice and and be intentional with our lives is really taking hold because I think it's it flies in the face of how most people feel like we should be living, and it that to me is so I don't know it fills me with confidence and optimism because there are so many of us. Yeah, definitely. And you spoke there about you know the way that we should be living, mm. and I guess it ta- it takes a turning point and it takes some realization to go. You know what? I might be heading down a particular path that I don't want to be heading down, even though that's the path that society is kind of deliberately or not deliberately pushing us down Mm -hmm. for you. How did you, how did you create that, that turnaround (laughs) with lots of tears (laughs) (laughs) and some significant um, counseling? Uh, I, so I actually, I was living the opposite of slow for many years and the opposite of intentional. I was kind of just throwing myself headlong into all the things that I thought I needed to do in order to be successful, never actually questioning much of it at all other than can I have more, <laughs> can I do more, can I be more. And it wasn't until I was di- so I was diagnosed with postnatal depression after my second child was born, even though I think that it was part of depression and anxiety had been part of my life for a long time. That was the first time someone had sat me down and said, this is what's happening. Mm. And it was through my recovery of that, that I initially discovered the idea of slow living. So I sat down with my psychiatrist every week for like 
two years and then gradually kind of she weaned me off her <laughs> um, at the same time as I was weaning myself off my uh, antidepressants. But it was in that period that I discovered this idea of slow living because she, she, I think, had spent a few months with me and very quickly had recognised a pattern to my behaviour and that pattern would go something like, I would turn up to a session and I would pretend like everything was fine for the first 10 minutes and then I would complain bitterly about everything that I had to do and be and own and want in life and how tired I was and how relentless it was. And I would do this week in and week out and she asked me one day, have you considered doing less? And while initially I was offended by the idea because I thought she said she was saying, you can't cope, you're not strong enough. She wasn't at all saying that. And the idea just stuck. And that's how I first started to research the idea of simplifying and slowing down. And over the, the next five or six years, it really morphed into what it is now, which is, you know, slower but more intentional more than anything, really paying attention and being present and being mindful and living a life that's aligned with what's important to me. And I think the second part of that is the really important part of my whole journey, I guess, is um, the time that I wrote my eulogy. And I think that was really a turning point for me, but I, I needed to do all the other work in order to get to that point and have that awareness. And when we talk about going at that fast pace mm. and, and you were doing all of these different things and whether that be so many after school activities that we have with the kids or just kind of that racing to always consuming more. Mm -hmm. I guess we sometimes do that because we feel like we're going to miss out that, that, that we're trying to keep up now that you've, you've gone through this and it's, you know, it's been a number of years. Do you feel like you're missing out? Do you feel that those, you know, those initial fears of that were keeping you at that fast pace, have any of those kind of come true? Mm, No, they haven't. It's a good question though, because I think that that it's like, it's part of the, the process. I think if I was still in the place mentally that I was a few years ago, then I would feel like I was missing out. But now I've completely realigned what's important to me. And I'm not missing out on those things. You know, like I might be missing out on, I don't know, something that would make a great Instagram shot. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) But in terms of the things that are important, which is family and, you know, work that's contributing to the world and all that kind of stuff, I'm not missing out on any of that. In fact, I'm, I'm getting more of that because I've decided it's okay to miss out on the things that I used to worry about, which was stuff or looking successful or, you know, having something that was, flashy just for the sake of saying that I could have it or having the new iPhone or whatever it might have been. It was incredibly, like looking back, it was incredibly shallow, but that's what I thought I needed in order to look like I had it all together. And that was mm. important to me, you know, to be the person who was was coping and doing well and that people would say, how does she do it? You know, uh, the fact is I wasn't doing it all. And when I tried to do it all, I was doing it all quite badly. And you spoke there too about, what's important to you. And, Mm. you know, I guess that really aligns with our values. And, and I, I know that when people reach out to me, sometimes they struggle to maybe articulate what is important to them or or what they value, which I think is such a common thing. Mm. And then, so then they're like, well, I kind of don't know then how to 
readjust or, or redirect my life. Do you have any tips for that? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not easy. And I think that my first tip is to to be patient with ourselves. Like it does take time and no one wants to hear that. When, um, and I didn't, I certainly didn't want to hear that when I first started changing things. I didn't want to know that it would take me five or six years to get to a point where I'm like, ah, oh, okay, this is what I've been working towards. Because that when you're struggling, when you really feel like you're kind of really just trying to keep your head above water, five or six years feels like forever. But it does take time and I think to to be patient with yourself and to understand that it's a process is important. But I, I also think that doing something as simple as starting to write a, a list of those things that you value, mm. plotting out, you know, where your time goes during your day or during your week and seeing if there's a disconnect there can be really helpful. So in the book I've got this you know, funny little illustration called a barometer of caring, you know, and level 10s are the things that might make it into my eulogy. Like they're the really just the core important things like family and, you know, looking after the planet and Stephen King books are like at a number nine. (laughs) But then, you know, it goes all the way down to a level one where like, yeah, I might spend a bit of time doing something with a level one or talking about it or whatever, but I don't really care that much about it. And I think plotting that out was fun, first of all, but it also helped me understand really where the important stuff was. And then I would look at how I was spending my days and noticing that the things that were kind of a level two or three were getting way more attention and time than the things that were like a nine or a 10. And it's just, I think, a very gradual process of starting to flip that that ratio. So in my first book, I talk about the idea of rhythm, you know, creating a rhythm to your morning or to your day. And doing that allows you to really reinvent the sequence of events in your morning or your day or your week and finding a little pocket of time for one of those things that are important to you and like really honoring that. So if it's, if you decide that you want to do, you want to create more, then give yourself, you know, half an hour on, on a Saturday or a Sunday to create something and block that time out and, and honour it and make sure you commit to it. And I think it's just by those really small recommitments to things that matter that we start to to see everything differently. And I think that there's a lot of organic change that happens once you commit to to shifting your your, your time and your energy towards the things that matter. And you may not have even necessarily planned for it to happen that way but they do slowly unfold towards it and then I think it's just a you know a a consistent recalibration because we all get Mm. busy and we all get distracted and I think it's a matter of uh yeah I guess shifting our attention back yeah it's interesting that you talk about commitment there because it's it's funny how we can commit ourselves to such meaningless things (laughs) And, and and they they seem to take up all of this time because, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that time is the true currency and we're all kind of paid equal amounts. And when, when I'm talking to some businesses lately and it's all about, hey, we're, we're too busy doing X, Y, Z mm. – and and what what's really important to them might be their their family and, and watching their kids grow and things like that. And and these are people that really can kind of create the change in their life, you know, if we're talking financially. But it's funny how they still will want to commit to these things that are really just sucking the time that, that don't align with those values. 
And it's, I, yeah, I guess you're right there. It's just being aware and taking the time to do the work and, and create those lists and have those discussions with your partner and to really think about like, where do we want to head? What is that direction that we do want to take? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think it's, you said it, do the work. It is work. It doesn't just happen. Um, it, you don't, you don't accidentally trip over and fall into an intentional life. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, and I, I laugh, but that was kind of what I used to, I used to think. I just assumed that life would look after me in that way. And I would just kind of find my, my feet. And the idea of like soul searching was this cute idea that people wrote songs about or something, but it wasn't something that I needed to do. And it's work and it's heavy and it's painful and uncomfortable sometimes, but it's absolutely worth it. And I think the more we talk about the work of, you know, remaking or refinding or recreating ourselves and the lives we want, I think the better because it is, it's a job, (laughs) you know, it's a big Mm. undertaking, but it's something that I would recommend that we all, we all try. Yeah, because I found with Inga and I, you know, when we talk about doing that work, for me, I've actually, and I, I, I'm, what I'm about to say, I might not do all the time, but for me, I've kind of let go of the outcome mm-hmm. because, you know, we were talking offline, you know, Inga and I have been looking at moving to the uh, a bit of a, a country change at the moment. And there was one big, beautiful property in Gresford that we were really seriously um, thinking about purchasing and we would have to build a house on it and all this kind of stuff. And over the course of a month, we were going, you know, I was doing so much research. We didn't end up getting that property. You know, the the figures just kind of didn't add up and it was maybe a little bit too big for what we were after. Mm-hmm. But just that process and the conversations that Ingrid and I had and really started to figuring out what was important to us and, and what were the things that we wanted to do. So now the next track or path that we walked out, we've, we've already got that bag of knowledge with us. Exactly. And I think that's, that's the thing. It's these, these little nuggets of, of information and conversations that you have and outcomes that you, that you achieve that, that might not have anything to do with that bigger outcome, but it's that knowledge that kind of helps you get to that next destination. Absolutely. And it, it's a process, right? Like it, it is a process. Very rarely do you just start from – like square one and arrive at the destination or the decision within, you know, a day or two or within one or two conversations. It's just, it's such a process. And I think it's a matter of maybe having a bit of faith that that's what's happening as well as we're slowly unraveling the knot uh, because we can't necessarily see that until we look back and we're like, oh, okay, well, we've come this far and now we know this and we understand this about our priorities and we tried this and realised that it didn't work for us so we're going to shift over here. And I think it's it's not straightforward. You know, I really thought that when I started exploring the idea of simplifying my life that I would declutter and then I would become kind of zen about life and then everything would be sweet. <laughs> That's not it. That's not how and, it works. And you have, a, you have a really beautiful diagram to explain that in the book, which is quite funny. <laughs> yeah. this, I'm glad this you find it funny. Yeah, this beautiful straight line and this is what I thought it was going to be yeah. like and then what actually happened was this kind of complete mess. But it yep. was – um. Yeah, but but that, that but that is life. Life is messy. Um, it is. And is, as – straight as we try to make it sometimes it just doesn't it just doesn't work like that but you've spoken about a eulogy Mm. a couple of times in this conversation and I I know that that was probably a 
a big turning point for you or maybe a, a realization point for you? Are you able to talk to me about that for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. It was a, it was a massive turning point. I think it was the turning point um, that took me from like I'd been kind of decluttering and simplifying life in a, a few other ways uh, for a couple of years before that. And I certainly was in a better place because of that. Like I'd really stripped away a few layers of crap that had been keeping me bogged down, but I hadn't made any huge strides towards living completely differently. Ben and I and the kids went to Canada in at the end of 2014. Canada was a place that we have loved forever. Ben and I worked there when we were in our early 20s as lifties in the, the Rocky Mountains and we always wanted to take our kids back and never thought we'd be able to, but we ended up, you know, working and saving for a couple of years and got there for Christmas 2014 and we were wandering through Banff in the Rockies and found this little bookshop and I realised that I wanted to get back into my writing over the last couple of months. So I found this little book. It was um, 642 Tiny Things to Write About this little book of writing prompts and we got back to the apartment we were staying in and I opened it up just randomly and the first page uh, of writing prompts that I opened to told me to write my eulogy in three sentences and that like that's a massive thing, right? I was 31 mm-hmm. at the time. I hadn't spent any time thinking about my death. <laughs> like I just it hadn't really occurred to me but I also hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about my life, which I think mm-hmm. was the problem. And I, over the next couple of days, I sort of thought about this idea and seesawed between thinking it was morbid and and thinking that there was something powerful in it. And I sat down and I I wrote out a few different options and and ended up writing my eulogy. And I remember the feeling of having it down on the page and looking at my family and, you know, looking at the changes we'd made and or the, the, the great things that had happened in our life up to this point. And it felt incredible because all of a sudden I knew what I was working towards. I hadn't ever had that before, I don't think. I had never been intentional enough to know what I was working towards with these changes. And that's why I think some of the changes that I was trying to make weren't sticking because I didn't know why I was working towards them. And I... (laughs) That feeling, that that feeling of finally having gotten it, of having figured out my why was really powerful and it lasted for like three minutes because I I then stopped and I said, well, am I living a life right now that if I continued to live this life for another 40, 50, 60 years, people would say this about me, you know, thinking about my eulogy? And the answer was no, I wasn't. Mm. Like I knew what was important to me. I knew unequivocally that my family and you know the planet and having an impact and doing good in the world were the most important things in my life but i didn't live like they were the most important things in my life and that was huge so what were some of the things that you you had to change because mm. I, you know I, th- I think that is that sometimes that that part that we we get stuck in and and when you when you just wrote your eulogy i guess you were were already a little bit further down this path. It's not like that's not exactly how you you started yes. this slowing journey. So it was kind of part of the process. But what were some of the things that you, when you had that realization, you're like, you know what? Okay, cool. I need to change this and I need mm-hmm. to change that because it's it's that change. It's that shift that I feel 
you know what I mean? Like getting, you know, the, the train tracks are so straight. Yep. And like, but to actually kind of lift up the carriage and put it onto a new track, like that takes effort. It does. Yeah. And it does take effort. I think for me, going back to what you were talking about with time, that was the biggest thing that needed to change. It was where it was questioning, where is my energy going every day? Because that's, Mm. that's life. Like where we, the things that we pay attention to, the things that we put energy into, whether we mean to or not, that's what we're doing with our life. And I was spending way too much time on social media, for example, but then going to bed feeling guilty because I hadn't spent enough quality time with my kids. You know, that's, Mm. that's a real disconnect there between what I know is important and what I'm doing. And I wasn't living like I knew what was important. So it was very gradually building boundaries in to my day for things that look, they're part of life, but they're not in any way, shape or form an important part of life. And it was realigning my priorities every day to making sure I was doing something with one of those things that are important to me. So, you know, that's work, it's spending time with family, it's being present and really turning up for my kids, not just physically, but also emotionally and mentally and in terms of my attention. And I hadn't been doing that. I mean, I might've been there, but I wasn't there. I was too busy worrying about everything else, mm. you know, to, to really be a present person in their life. And like, that sucks to say that mm. now. It's an awful thing to realize, but I'm glad I did realize it because otherwise, you know, it would be another four or five years of the same thing under my belt by now. So it, it really is just a gradual reprioritization. And I think, again, going back to practicalities, making a list of those things that are important to you at the moment, and that will and can and should change over time, but making a list of three or four things that are really important and, again, committing to putting your time and energy into those things rather than the things that, that maybe are easier or more natural to, to put our time and energy into. And... I mean, that opens up a conversation about like procrastination and mm. discomfort and, you know, lots of different things, but I think they're all part of it. Mm. I was actually going to say like out of those, which, which were the tough ones? Oh, that's a good question. For me, becoming emotionally available was very difficult, you know, really opening myself up because I think that requires me to ask questions of myself and my choices and my actions that I didn't necessarily like the answer to. And it took a lot of unpacking, I think, of my thoughts on self-worth. Like that's a that's been a huge thing for me, figuring out why I didn't feel like my time or attention or love was worth much. Mm. And for me, um, the biggest piece of the puzzle there has been meditation. And I've been meditating for a couple of years and sometimes more frequently than others, but it's all, it's been a part of life for a couple of years. And that has very surprisingly to me, I didn't expect this when I started, has taught me the power of just feeling my feelings and being completely present in discomfort and uncertainty and even anxiety and stress and just softening into them. And very gradually that has allowed me to soften into those really deep, unspoken, I guess, concerns about my own self-worth and, and value. And there's never, there's not been like an aha moment at all. I, I haven't had like a, you know, a life-shattering 
earth-shaking kind of moment of realisation. It's just been a really gradual shift to a point now I can look back and go, okay, that's what was happening there and this is where I am now and it's a it's certainly a much healthier place to be. And it's sometimes when we when we actually take the time to look back, and I, I'm, I'm definitely not one to, to live in the past at all, but taking that time to look back, you can go, wow, that's how far I came. Yes. Now I can look forward. I'm going to be that much further in that same amount of time. And, and that for me, maybe it's just kind of my personality that is encouraging because like, okay, that's the big change that's going to happen. It might not happen tomorrow, but it's, you know, we're heading, we're heading in that direction because when I look back, that's the direction I kind of came from. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sort of going back to what I said before about the idea of having a bit of faith that the changes are happening, we just may not see them yet. And that's Mm. where I think it's really important. Just stick with it. You know, once you know why it's much easier to stick with something, even if you're not seeing immediate results. Mm. And I think if you can do that for a month or three months or six months, and then, then allow yourself to look back and see what's changed. I think that that's where you're going to, to realize, like you say, you've come this far and that then becomes the motivator that, that continues to allow you to, to push through things that are difficult or uncomfortable. And we're talking about, you know, a lot of big changes and things like that, or, you know, small changes that, that can create big results. Mm. You know, you're a, a wife and a mother of two. So you're making these changes as, as in a sense, individual changes, but you're part of this family unit. How, how has that been, you know, kind of going on this journey with other people that have their own individualness and things like that? Mm. Mostly fine, like mostly pretty like, bump free, but I, I've always been really aware of the fact that I don't, I don't live in a vacuum, you know, and the changes that I make or the, the things that maybe I would like to see in life don't just affect me. You know, I do have two kids, I am married and their needs are just as important as mine. And I think it's been this constant kind of renegotiation of what's important to, to one member of the family and making sure that, that our kids feel like they're this home and this life is also theirs. So people often ask me about clutter and kids, for example, and, you know, my kids are both collectors and that's okay. I'm not going to impose my idea of like a minimalist aesthetic on them providing like I give them enough space to to be who they are without it affecting everyone else so you know asking about one of my kids has a rock collection right (laughs) (laughs) which is great (laughs) you know and that's fine and there's a space for the rock collection and if the rock collection or the toy collection or the dinosaur collection or whatever it is the books get too big for the space that they've they've got then they know that it's time to reevaluate what they keep and what they don't. And we do that, you know, four times a year, first day of the school holidays, every term, we just go through their room and they, they figure out what they do and don't want anymore. And we pass it on. And I think that just in the example of kids, giving them enough space and ownership of that space is really important because I don't want to, I guess, dampen their, their innate enthusiasm for things because I don't know what that's going to lead them to. I, you know, I, I want to let them be themselves 
within the boundaries of operating within a family. So, mm. uh, and that applies to, to lots of different things. I mean, that could apply to technology. If you've got a kid who loves coding, but you're really anti-technology, I think it's important to, well, not anti-technology, but, you know, anti-screen time or whatever it may be. And I think it's important to allow them to to be who they are within the boundaries of, you know, a fa- being a family unit. And same applies to Ben and I. You know, I think that I would love to just sell, literally sell everything and live out of a backpack for the rest of my life, but that's not going to suit three out of the four of us, you know. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> and it's a matter of kind of figuring out, okay, so this is, we've got this yearning for travel. How do we do that in a way that works for all four of us? And it's a, it's a constant kind of seesaw. It's, I think being in a relationship, any kind of relationship is there's periods of giving and, and then periods of taking. And I think it's a matter of looking back over it long-term and seeing that, yep, that's, that's fair and equitable because at any one time you may feel like you're giving or taking a little more than the other. And I think taking a snapshot isn't necessarily a healthy or helpful way of looking at it, but long-term, how balanced mm. are we? And you spoke there about a, uh, a healthy love of travel. Mm-hmm. You've got some travel plans actually coming up next year where you're going to be taking a family and living in North America. So tell me a little bit about that, but but also about the process to kind of arrive at that point, because I think so often we can hear people's stories, you know, especially with my story, uh, you know, we packed, donated or sold everything so we could slow travel through North America for a year. And and people kind of see the, the traveling year and go, wow, that's amazing. But they kind of forget about the iceberg underneath the ocean that <laughs> was really about allowing that year to, to kind of take place. Yes. So how was how has that journey or, or that evolution of those beautiful ideas kind of come to part it's been a big process i think ben and i spent probably the 12 months leading up to us finally deciding to go feeling very lost and very um kind of in a, a state of flux we really didn't feel grounded in any I mean, we we're going through lots of changes. So he'd become self-employed, kind of he's coming up to 18 months, uh, almost actually coming up to almost two years at the end of the year of being self-employed. I had been, my work had changed significantly and we knew that we had this real yearning for some kind of adventure, but then we've got two kids who had started school and like, there was a lot of grappling with what we should be doing, what the right thing to do and figuring out what we wanted to do and how to make that work and just endless conversations about it. And at the time, of course, it feels frustrating. You feel like you're sort of stuck in this holding pattern. But again, like we, we've spoken about a few times, looking back, we could see that what we're actually doing in those conversations was working stuff out, figuring out what we wanted it to look like, what we hoped to get from an experience like that. And we understand. And I think Actually, I think part of it was also grappling with the fact that we could see how lucky we are to be able to do that. And we absolutely are. Yes, we've put things in place. We've changed the way we work. We've changed the way we live in order for this to become something we can do. But even to be in a position to be able to change those things, we're incredibly fortunate. So I think some of that has also been like some of our our hesitancy but our you know the need to process it comes from the fact that we feel uncomfortable with the fact that we're so fortunate in that way 
So there's been a lot of things going into it. And it's not just the practicalities of travel. I mean, they're kind of things that we're only starting to think about now. It's been all the other stuff that we've had to, to unpack and figure out and, and feel okay with or feel okay with not feeling okay with that took the time. And it's, I mean, it's incredibly exciting, but also fairly, you know, fairly daunting. I think mm. when it becomes a reality, it becomes more daunting, I think. Oh, I 100% agree with you. Like when Inga and I were playing around with the idea of of traveling and, you know, I spent like four months spooking our family, like, because we were, the only way we could afford to do it was house and pet sitting. But before anything was locked in, it was like, yeah, we're trying for this. <laughs> oh, and, 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 and we, all we had felt was we, rejection for four months mm. and then once we got that first one locked in we, we were so excited but then it was like oh, oh wow now we actually need to make this happen yeah. <laughs> you know no one no one told me about those you know just kind of more hurdles and fears and unanswered questions that i i now had to kind of figure out but again like that's that's all, all part of the fun like it's not you know i always say to people like the way this kind of way of life, like being deliberate and being intentional and being kind of mindful ab ab about how you want to live, that doesn't make it an easy. Mm -mm. If it's, it's not an easy way to live. I think if anything, you kind of feel cause you're not numb anymore. You actually feel every decision yep. in its glory, but it then also kind of in its, in its pain, yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard to kind of explain. Like it's, it's not an, it's not an, an easy choice, but it's a really rewarding choice. Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely not easy. And I say this all the time, like it doesn't make it easy, but it does make it simple or simpler, I think, because you know what you're working towards. Um, and you know, when you're listening to yourself, uh, you know, it's just a matter of making the choices and making the decisions. And that's not easy. It's the decisions, it's the conversations, it's the letting go, it's the, you know, all the things that come as part of living a more intentional life that are difficult. But very rarely do you waver because you have done the head work and the heart work of figuring out what's important. And I think that there's there's a lot of freedom in that. There's a lot of work in it, but there's a lot of freedom. And I totally agree with you that living more intentionally, once you wake up, once you see this stuff, once you feel it, once you tune into your intuition, your priorities, your why, whatever you want to call it, you can't not hear that anymore. Like it's really hard to turn that off. And it is sometimes highly uncomfortable. And same thing happened to me when I first started meditating. <laughs> The first few days, you know, because I discovered meditation doing a, an experiment for the podcast. And the first few days, I'm like, this is amazing. You know, why doesn't everyone do this? Meditation's awesome. And it's, you know, it's easy. And I'm just sitting here and I'm breathing and I feel great. And then I guess a layer of something was stripped off me <laughs> through, it, through that process. And everything felt a little more tender and a little more raw. And I started paying attention. And, and this was part of the process of me becoming emotionally available, like I mentioned before. And it's uncomfortable. Like you're not just emotionally available for the good stuff. You know, you're emotionally available all the time. And that means that you, you do, well, I, I felt more deeply and more sharply and was vastly more aware of sadness and joy and, mm. you know, and envy and, you know, pride and, and everything that's kind of on the spectrum of the human emotions. And it is startlingly uncomfortable sometimes. Mm. 
um, but but worth it. Yeah. And how do you how do you deal with the the unknowingness? You know, <laughs> like you, you you've got this this big life adventure happening and it's you know it's going to be great because it's it's coinciding with the release of slow in north america mm-hmm. and, and i i won't even try to figure out your release dates around the world because they're <laughs> they're you know they're quite strange so we might be able to get that towards the end of the podcast but you know there's there's that un, that that unknowingness of the trip but then mm-hmm. also that return coming home and and you know it's life Mm-hmm. In a sense, like we, we we don't know. We can pretend that we know when we're just numbingly going down a particular path because yeah. doing when we do the same thing every day, we feel like we have that control when really we don't. But how do you deal with the the not knowing? And and I guess that really comes into play when when you're making decisions. Mm. Yeah, I think um, a few different ways. I. I firstly now try and soften into the not knowing because like you say, even if we think we know, even if we think we're in control, we don't actually know. And I think it's been a very gradual process, that years-long process of softening into that and understanding that I'm in control of what I choose to do, I'm in control of you know what I say and what my actions and reactions are, but there's a whole other world out there that I'm not in control of. And I think just a gradual acceptance and softening into that is really important for lots of different reasons. But in terms of, you know, the, the trip, I'm similar to you in that I'm, uh, and, the, and the coming home as well, I'm, I'm trying not to be tied to outcomes or results mm. or goals. We've, uh, so practically speaking, we have locked in the first four um, months of our trip uh, for heaps of different reasons, you know, just cash flow and because then the release of the book is sort of still up in the air in terms of dates but we know that we wanted to spend a few months in mountain towns in Canada so we basically have locked that in just in chunks of accommodation and apart from that we have no idea what's happening after that and I'm really having to kind of constantly maintain the tension between the part of me who wants to research and figure out cool stuff to see and do and the part of me that wants to lock that stuff in (laughs) because Mm. of certainty. And it's been nice to really just cast my my net fairly wide in figuring out what the possibilities are but not actually tying myself to any of them at the moment because I think understanding what's at stake or what's on offer is important but it's also important to not, get caught up in in what that might look like because the last couple of years have taught me anything it's that even if something that you want to happen happens writing a book for example so the outcome is the thing that you had in mind but the process looks vastly different so I think it's really important to not close ourselves off from that either because otherwise we lose so much you know there's so much Mm joy and depth to to be had if we just allow ourselves to be in the process and if i yeah if i if i go into it with too many preconceived ideas then i'm not going to be in the process i'm not going to be completely present and that's just a constant reminding of myself i think to to be there and to turn up and yeah be be mm. where where i am and just enjoy the ride absolutely yeah mm. absolutely but one final question before we go here, Brooke, and I know that you have answered this before, but I will ask it again because as as we've discovered, things definitely do change. Mm-hmm. But that's if you could please describe your perfect day. 
<laughs> okay. Well, I say I have two different perfect days. I have a perfect day like home here and then I have a perfect, perfect day. Uh, but a perfect day here, uh, you know, a working kind of regular day starts at 5.30. Actually, before I start, I want to say that I realized the other day that I had one of these days recently and it's it was really fascinating because in my head I thought that the angels would sing and like there'd be a special light to everything <laughs> when I'm like, yeah, I have one of these days. Fantastic. Um, but it was just a day, you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I get up. I like to get up before everyone else mm-hmm. uh, and just spend the first hour in quiet creating and being like making, not consuming. So I get up, I, you know, have a shower, I get dressed, I meditate, do a little bit of yoga, and then I write for the first hour. And that's the first hour of my day. And that fills me up in a way that nothing else I've tried has. And it's just a pure creation. It's not creating for end consumption. It's not creating for someone else to read. It's just the act of creation. And then just roll through the morning, very kind of bog standard school lunches kind of morning with a piece and a space mm. to me that I hadn't ever had before. And then to sit down and to work for, you know, five, six hours on something that is important to me. And then to be free enough in the afternoon to spend time with my kids in the backyard, go for a bushwalk, cook dinner together, and then spend time with Ben and go to bed and read. And it's such a boring day. But it is, if you're talking just your your normal day, I've put so much work into creating a rhythm that works for me, that leaves me feeling fulfilled, but also pleasantly tired at the end of the day. And that's it, you know, then Mm. probably sprinkle a bit of time in the garden, time outside in amongst that. And that's it, you know, I think it's so ordinary, but it feels so, yeah, fulfilling and satisfying. And we've spoken about, you've mentioned boundaries before. And when I look at your perfect day, I feel like there are these beautiful little fences around everything. Mm. You've got that, what you do in the morning for you. And then it's, you know, getting the kids ready for school and then it's work and then it's playtime and then it's togetherness and then it's sleep. And it's, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's that kind of deliberate notion from moving from one to the next Mm. instead of trying to have a day that has those exact same ingredients but all mixed together yes and i think i think that's often where we where we get unstuck where we go people well that's what i do in my day but but they're doing it all at all at the one time yeah and i think that's the that's this idea of work-life balance that needs to just be shot down it really does because it sort of speaks to having to do it all at the same time Whereas I like to, and I'm able to, and I fully understand that not everyone is able to like this, but I do create these kind of pockets for different areas of life. It doesn't happen every day. Like I'd be lying if I said it did, but when it does, or when I'm able to at least do some of that, and it's the idea of tilting that I, that I talk about, like tilting into work and being all in and being effective and productive, and then tilting into time spent together as a family uh, when the kids are home it allows me to do both but to turn up fully present in both just not at the same time mm-hmm. and I think that that's that's the way that I, you know I'm able to go to bed with that feeling you know you do that gut check feeling at the end of the day sometimes you're like how did how did I do did I you know did I did I spend enough time with the people I wanted to did I did I move enough did I eat well and you kind of get those pangs in the gut 
sometimes when you know you didn't. And that's okay. Like that's that's life. But then it's a matter of making sure you turn up for that thing the next day and tilt in. And mm-hmm. It gives you the the ability to be flexible while also getting through the things and, and enjoying the things that you want. No, I most definitely 100% agree with that. And we, we spoke at the very beginning of this chat, Brooke, about your Newcastle book launch on mm-hmm. Wednesday, the 27th of September, up here in Newcastle at the Hunter Design School and tickets for the uh, for that event. And it's I think it's like $5 just to cover some room hire. All the links to the tickets will be in the show notes at liveimmediately.com. But you've also got some other book talks coming mm-hmm. up and and then also the release of the book. So tell me all of the crazy days. <laughs> so I've got kind of maybe a dozen different events on over the next couple of months. I'm not going to tell you all the dates because I can't remember them off the top of my head, but <laughs> slowyourhome.com slash events and you'll find everything that I'm up to for the next uh, couple of months listed there. The book is now out in Australia and New Zealand and it's coming out in uh, the States and Canada in spring next year. I don't know the exact date yet, but when to coincide with that, we'll be doing a bit of a book tour in North America Mm -hmm. as well. Again, I'm not entirely sure what that's going to look like yet, but if anyone listening in the States knows a bookshop or wants to put on a, a book chat, let me know. Just, just go over to the website and, um, and and get in touch because we're starting to put together what that may look like, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a project. <laughs> but an exciting project. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, getting to chat to people who listen to the podcast or have read the books, it's something that I've had to train myself to be comfortable with because it's sort of, it's well and truly out of my comfort zone, but it's so wonderful. It really is just to see how passionate people are as well Mm. about the ideas that you and I have spoken about and, you know, the ideas that are in the book or just the idea of slow or, you know, being present or paying attention or being intentional. And it's, I feel incredibly optimistic and excited because there's this sort of groundswell of momentum built on people who want to, make a difference and who want to turn up and be present. And I think there's so much good in the world that's going to happen as a result. Who is that? Hi, Puck.